Hi, I'm Helen Avery and you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. In episode five, I'm joined by John Elkington, chief pollinator and founder of Volans and author of Green Swans, the coming boom in regenerative capitalism. I think the only way to get to resilience properly in a world where the systems on which we're uh, dependent, most uh, crucially, uh, the biosphere, all of those systems are starting to wobble. Um, the only way that you can get to true resilience, sustained over time, is by investing uh, in the future health of those systems. And that for me is regeneration. And a bit of background on John Elkington before he joins us today. He is known as the godfather of sustainability, having been driving the movement since the 1970s. Over his career, he's advised the biggest corporations in the world on sustainability, always coming up with a way to break out and beyond comfort zones. And in his latest book, Green Swans, John calls on us all to step up over this crucial decade ahead and transform our entire approach to capitalism. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So welcome, John. How are you? Well, thank you, Helen. I'm, I, I'm uh, as they seem to say these days, I'm good. Frustrated, as we all are, being sort of locked up in our homes and slightly Zoom crazy. But apart from that, uh, in good health. And okay. what about you? Um, surviving as well. Good. good. I like, is this the new thing? No one's great anymore. We're just, we're just good. good. <laughs> well, it's such a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very, very busy schedule, as we know. And I, I think initially we'd just love to talk to you about your latest book. Now, obviously, you've written 20 books, um, but the latest one, Green Swans, The Coming Boom in Regenerative Capitalism, um, we collectively read it at the Institute as part of our book club, um, and it led to such a rich conversation, and thank you for that. But I wondered if we could just start, for those listening who haven't had the pleasure of reading Green Swans, if you could just distill the essence of the book's message. The idea of green swans was relatively simple. It 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 came from a reading of um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's um, book, uh, The Black Swan, which, as you know, came out just before the 2007-2009 uh, crash. Mm -hmm. um, and what he asked was, um, basically, are there events that we don't see coming that have an absolutely shocking effect when they do arrive? And where afterwards we stand back, think we've understood them, but really haven't and have actually basically set ourselves up to fail again. So my simple question was, if black swans mainly take us exponentially where we don't want to go, what would green swans, which took us exponentially where we did want to go, look like? And are there any out there? Mm. And, and it was written before COVID-19, but feels even more relevant now. And on, on that, um, COVID-19 isn't a black swan, I believe. Well, uh, Taleb, he basically said it, it, it absolutely isn't because all sorts of people saw pandemics coming uh, and, and governments even set up agencies to sort of deal with these sorts of um, crises. Uh, at least one case shut it down and, and, and in the UK's case ignored the uh, findings, uh, Project Cygnus. So no, I don't think it is uh, a black swan formally. Uh, but in terms of its its impact and its systemic impact, I think it's actually oddly both a black swan and a green swan. Hmm, so that's interesting. Why do you say it's a green swan as well? 
Well, because I, I, my sort of theory of change is that as a species, we tend to leave everything uh, until the last possible moment and often until it's too late. Uh, and very often when we do act and when we do act in the end successfully, it's because we're backed into a corner. We're left with uh, little choice. And I think the pandemic uh, has been a whack to the head of, of all sorts of people. Uh, and clearly it will have malign uh, impacts in the sense that it will distract uh, people and it will mean that we have to spend a vast amount of society's treasure on things that are not terribly productive. But at the same time, I think it can have a benign effect. It totally depends on uh, good uh, political leadership and good corporate leadership or business leadership and you know uh, wise investment and so on. And particularly on the political front, we're rather starved uh, of that uh, at the moment. But uh, I think this is not going to go away in a few months. This is not going to go away in a few years. This is a sort of correction that happens once in a lifetime. And one of the things I do in the book is the first diagram is called the Uban. And uh, what I'm talking about there is the very long wave economic cycles that last, again, probably a human lifetime in some cases, but are getting more truncated uh, all the time. And I think we're in one of those. And I think what's happening is that a macroeconomic and geopolitical uh, order that we've all grown up with and taken for granted, which our grandparents and parents put a lot of effort into in the you know, 1940s Bretton Woods and the Marshall Plan and so on. And that's sort of falling apart. It uh, doesn't mean it's guaranteed to fall apart, but, but th there's a very strong undertow uh, here. And that leads me to conclude that you know, people can uh, continue to look for their U and V and W shaped or K shaped uh, recoveries. And indeed, they'll sometimes see those. But underneath it, there's a, there's a, a massive shift in the way in which value is created in our societies. And that, that'll take 12 to 15 years uh, to really uh, bed in. So just to clarify here, you're saying we need to completely rethink economic theory. Well, the way that economics is done, I mean, I, I think economics uh, was once described, I can't remember by whom, as a sort of uh, form of brain damage. <laughs> and I, I sort of, of course, I would say that because I gave up economics after one year at university. Um, and now, finally, I start. We start to see economists uh, with really interesting things to say. Joe Stieglitz, uh, Kate Rayworth, Mariana Mazzucato, and so on. It's still a very small uh, movement uh, within the, the broad mass of economic uh, thinking, but I think it's immensely exciting. It's immensely necessary. What I really loved about the book was that your work in it is really pushing the boundaries of our thinking around how business and capitalism operate. Um, and it really feels like it's taken a long time for business to say, okay, we agree shareholder capitalism is over. And now we're embracing stakeholder capitalism. And then along mm. comes you and says, actually, this is merely a step towards where we need to be going. And that's regenerative capitalism. So um, I just wonder if you can share with us about what that looks like, regenerative capitalism, and so we can sort of see the path ahead. Well, the, the first thing to say is I, I didn't set out to be difficult, <laughs> although I've been often uh, <laughs> accused of that. Um, I, I, I'm just trying to express uh, what I and a growing number of people see uh, in the tea leaves in our future. And, and it's a world where a continually expanding uh, human population with all sorts of new technologies and lifestyle expectations and so on 
presses in both on on, on our societies, but also on the uh, natural uh, environment. So when, when we did the Tomorrow's Capitalism Inquiry, one of the things that I did was try and stand back from what had been a largely intuitive decision to recall the triple bottom line and think, why the hell did I do that? And the more I thought about it, the more I, I, I began to realize that underneath it was a, was a, a, a growing issue, which is that, that sustainability, which is a, a, a movement and almost now an industry, which I've sort of uh, helped drive along in recent decades, um, had been distilled down uh, and largely by business people into responsibility. So if you're responsible, then you were being sustainable, which ain't exactly true. Um, responsibility only took you so far, and you could be responsible within a, a, a system that was actually coming to pieces. And so uh, what I realized was that um, responsibility wasn't going to go away. It's the bedrock. It's foundational. And in fact, the pandemic has massively expanded the responsibility agenda for uh, well, all sectors of society, but particularly business and, uh, and the investment world. Uh, and so we've now got things like um, uh, wealth divides. We've got you know the differential provision of public health care to different parts of society. We've got tax avoidance and evasion and havens and so on. So all that stuff is sort of accumulating and, and, and making the responsibility agenda even uh, more of a challenge to address. But at the same time, you listen to what leaders are saying in all sectors. And um, what I'm detecting is a, a sense among many leaders that you can get to resilience by sort of speaking about it increasingly frantically and wishing for it, which now I'm probably being a little bit unfair, but I'm, I'm sort of dramatizing for effect perhaps. <laughs> um, but I think the only way to get to resilience properly in a world where the systems on which we're uh, dependent, our economic, our social, our governance, political uh, systems, but m most uh, crucially, uh, the biosphere, the natural environment, all of those systems are starting to wobble. Um, the only way that you can get to true resilience sustained over time um, is by investing uh, in the future health of those systems. And that for me is re uh, regeneration. Um, and it's, it's, it's remarkable. And now we've had Walmart declare a few weeks back that they, they're committed now to become a regenerative uh, company. Wow. Well, let's see. Let's see. I mean, this is their CEO. And behind them is Paul Hawken, who is writing a sort of uh, a huge new book on uh, regeneration that comes out late next year. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm suspending disbelief because I don't particularly like Walmart as a brand or a business. Uh, nonetheless, it's a huge feature in the landscape with massive economic uh, power, gravitational pull almost on many, many other companies. And the fact that they've now declared that they want to be regenerative, that will have an impact on how other business leaders think in this space. So I wonder if you can share with us any examples of that shift to regenerative capitalism so far, sort of a, a tangible example, you know, Walmart has said they're going to commit to it, but what does that look like? Well, I was originally trained as a city planner, um, and that was in the early 1970s. Um, and one of my fascinations then was in urban regeneration. Um, and urban regeneration is partly economic, and it's partly social, and it's partly environmental, and it's partly political. So, I mean, in a way, uh, elements of this story have been there for a very long time. 
And then in the uh, late 70s, I started to write for New Scientists. And one of the stories I did was on the huge hole that had been dug by English China clays and China clay uh, miners before them um, in Cornwall, which has subsequently become the Eden uh, oh. project. And you know, you look at and, and and then I was looking at styles of regeneration that were being practiced. Nothing like uh, Tim Smith uh, then put into uh, practice. But one of the things I tried to do in the book was to pick out examples of where this had been done. So if you go to China and you take the natural environment then the loose plateau uh, is a huge area from which the Han people originated. And they'd wrecked it. I mean, as human beings often do, uh, they turned it into a, pretty much a hilly desert. And now over the last 30 years and some, uh, the Chinese have been recreating uh, much of the uh, the habitat that was there before. So if you fly over it now, you'll you see parts of it much greener than they once uh, would have been. And in other parts of the world, what we find is when you do that, after a time, the weather patterns start to shift and they start to go back to yeah. more benign uh, uh, patterns. You start to get rain, you start to get rivers coming back and and, uh, and so on. So that that is uh, an example that is primarily um, about the natural environment, but it's absolutely intrinsically about people and, and, and um, economies as, as well, because without a healthy natural environment, agriculture and farming can't operate and communities. So th th that's a, a, a peculiarly dramatic example, but it did actually reinforce in me a, a conclusion, which was, if you look at black swans, they largely happen because we've been careless. We haven't paid attention. Uh, there are unintended consequences. We really didn't plan to clog the world ocean with plastics. Mm. We didn't. And the contrast with that, which, so it's an accident and oops, we're sorry, but uh, now we're gonna have to clean up the mess with green swans is that those aren't accidents, they're intentional and they have to be planned for and invested in over in, in, in some cases, very considerable uh, periods of time. But some of it's quite small, just f f finally there. I, one of the things that really excites me, my home city is London. And one of the things that was done, uh, I think, last year or just late last the year before that was that london was declared a national park city the world's first what an extraordinary mind game to play and and suddenly we start to look at our city in different ways it it, it, it has a lot of green uh, space but declaring uh, you know a national park city with everyone's garden suddenly pulled into it and and green uh, roofs and all the rest of it at the heart of all of this is and it's one of the reasons why economics is so important it's how we think about the future, how we think about value and pricing, how we think about ourselves. So regeneration can sound abstract, but there are plenty of examples where people are already doing elements of it. But it's not easy. I mean, it, you can't take a, a traditional business model and turn it regenerative overnight. This, this is going to take, in some cases, decades. When I think about it, how I sort of see what you were describing as our current situation has been sort of a yeah. spiraling down. and with some effort, we then start to spiral up and it becomes, as you, I know you say, green swans create like a virtuous circle rather than black yeah. swans, which are a, a vicious circle. You mentioned that, you know, it's not easy for businesses to um, switch to a regenerative model. And we've seen some of this around regenerative agriculture. Sometimes there's, you know, a bit of a dip in profits yeah. and yields while you're, you know, making the soil healthy again for a couple of years. Um, that needs financing, one would think, to be able to sort of ride 
the wave until you sort of start coming up again. To what extent have you seen finance available for that? I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing a whole lot of it, to be honest, but I wondered you know, how important that is and, and what you're seeing. Well, in every area of regeneration, finance is crucial. If you take, for example, some of the low input uh, farming approaches and organic ag- agriculture and so on, yes, there is often a dip uh, in productivity. And then longer term, some of the value that's created is not directly financial. It's, it's you know, social, it's environmental, the health of uh, wider systems and so on. And it's precarious. And we're seeing that now with Brexit, where in, in, in at least in the United Kingdom, the uh, organic certification is suddenly at threat uh, because of the separation uh, event. Um, and so what a horrible time to be an organic farmer in a way. Uh, and yet, I think if you if you look out 20 to 30 years, which is a long time, but if it, it short time in terms of uh, the evolution of economies, you're seeing all sorts of ways in which money might be channeled into the regeneration of soils and forests. So for example, if we are to survive, we're gonna to have to crack this um, climate emergency before it cracks us. And the, uh, the best way of doing that, apart from simply sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which is a hideously expensive task, it'll get cheaper over time, but, it, but it's nonetheless pretty complicated. And the question is then, what do you do with the extracted carbon? There will be uh, uh, ways forward found, I'm sure. But I think that uh, the economic regime uh, around carbon is going to have to shift and shift convulsively. In fact, I think within the next 10 years, we're going to see a carbon panic where people suddenly realize how dangerous uh, the carbon that we're uh, emitting into the atmosphere is. And we're going to, we're going to sort of, there's going to be a flight from carbon. And, and it, I think the, Financial and economic consequences of that are going to be uh, fairly um, uh, profound. But look out the other side of that, and what you have, uh, potentially at least, is a regime where people doing good work to restore soils and to restore forests and to restore marine ecosystems and fisheries and so on, and and, um, seagrass uh, beds and so on, all of which are very good at uh, at capturing uh, carbon, you suddenly have money that is potentially available f- f- in recompense for the captured carbon going to the farmers. Um, and there's a wonderful guy in the United States based at Arizona State University, Peter Bick, and he has done a film called The Carbon Cowboys. And he's looking at, in many cases, quite redneck, extremely Republican uh, ranchers who have got the bug, who see the climate uh, change is a major issue, who see that there is this sort of happy marriage of being able to extract carbon from the atmosphere and rebuild the uh, structure and fertility of your soils and get rewarded for it. So McDonald's, for example, has started to compensate um, farmers uh, for carbon um, capture in uh, methods and I, I, you know, that's a small thing for them at the moment, but I'm, I am sure that will grow very rapidly over time. So tough at the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm sounding like a weather forecaster, but um, <laughs> uh, long term, I think this is going to be uh, a lot more benign for those people trying to do the right thing. You go as far as to say that capitalism will be replaced unless it's entirely transformed. That feels like a really bold statement and and probably terrifying to a lot of people. Can you share a little more on it? 
It, well, firstly, it should be terrifying because if they look at the alternative, that is uh, absolutely terrifying. Um, but if, if you think about it in the next sort of year or five or decade, then it's absolutely, it's impossible. There's no way we can do this in that sort of timescale. But if you take a generational uh, uh, timescale and maybe a couple of generations and, and you push it back into the 2060s or 2070s, it's eminently possible to do this. In fact, we will do it because we're going to be left with almost no choice uh, but to do it. So I, I, I think changing economies happens the whole time. And in fact, one of the extraordinary things about the COVID-19 uh, crisis is it's shown us how quickly we can change elements of our economies that we thought were immutable. You know, things that were seen to be completely impossible suddenly become not only possible, but almost considered inevitable. In a way, COVID-19 is modeling what will happen to us as we then get slammed by the climate emergency. And behind that comes the biodiversity, the uh, you know species loss. So I, I don't mean to terrify, <laughs> but it's in the nature of the data. Um, it's a terrifying prospect. But the inverse uh, of that is that it's immensely exciting. What a privilege to be born into a period where we can, in principle at least, change everything. Uh, but then we need extraordinary leadership to be able to do that in every sector uh, of our society. Well, let's maybe move on and talk about leadership. Mm. Um, so over your life, you've spoken to many leaders within business and government and trained many leaders um, and continue to do so at Volans. To what extent um, do you think we're at this moment where we need our leaders in finance and business to be bold and step up? Um, yeah. And are there any examples you can give? Well, the first thing to say is the old model of leadership, which is you know a, a glorious individual standing up with a sword or, or a computer or whatever it is and, and leading the charge, um, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about increasingly distributed, decentralized forms of leadership. And uh, one of the things that I'd say in the book is that I don't think it's just capitalism under threat uh, and about to unravel. I also think it's democracy uh, under threat. And we've got to now engineer, create new forms of democracy which are fit for purpose in, in what comes next. Um, and also I feel that the sustainability industry is no longer fit uh, for purpose. So those three uh, great clods of our societies and economies are all coming under growing pressure to transform. But I, I, I fear we've got to go into a greater amount of pain before we actually decide to do what we increasingly in our sort of bones feel we're going to have to do. But it's it's going to be all of us, which is why I say distributed uh, leadership is going to be absolutely central. And management models will have to change to uh, embrace that notion. So uh, there's a lot of talk about inclusive forms of management within organizations and consulting the workers and all the rest of it. Well, uh, great. But um, the, the, the companies, I think, that will thrive in the future will be the ones that have cultures which really, really uh, embrace uh, in inclusion and assiduously every day to engage not only external stakeholders, but internal ones as well. Well, so a real collaborative capitalism economy. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that will happen on the edge. It will happen with um, smaller companies that then evolve. And I mean, no, the most notable one perhaps has been Google uh, and its culture has changed over time. And one could argue whether it uh, is still um, 
well, it, it, it stripped away the do no evil uh, value, didn't it? Um, but but I think those new work cultures, they're very difficult to um, create and sustain inside incumbent organizations that are by their nature traditional and conservative. Um, doesn't mean it's impossible, but it's hard. Uh, and so a lot of it will be pioneered on the edges uh, of our economies. Mm. Now, I think I heard you say within that, that the sustainability industry itself needs unraveling. Is that correct? Well, probably um, uh, reinvented is a, is a more positive way of framing it. Um, but, you know, I, it is, you know I, I've been one of the uh, cheerleaders in that space for a very long time. So I, I have to take the blame for um, getting people hooked sort of 30, 40 years ago on the notion of stakeholder capitalism and everything that went with it, including stakeholder engagement and reporting and so on. And all that's fine, but it's actually just become uh, like genuflection in, in sort of older religions. It's just something you do because it's expected of you. Uh, and what you're not paying that much attention to is as you start to produce this data, you know, and put out this information, who's actually using it to uh, in the simple terms, to make the world a better place. Who is aggregating all this data uh, 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 and then sort of driving policy evolution and so on with that? And the answer is, sadly, that that's actually not done as much as it should be. And therefore, when I'm saying that the sustainability industry needs to be disrupted, it will be anyway, because what's happening is it's going mainstream. That agenda that's been on the edge and scrabbling for resources for a very long time is now being seen as central to our future uh, and what that means is some very very big players indeed are starting to come into the space and invest uh, in it um, and i think that's inevitable i think you always get this process of consolidation but the question is whether the consolidation happens in the old order and therefore cements uh, the, you know the incremental uh, change mindsets or whether in some way it can actually pitch forward into the future and you can have convergence and new forms of consolidation around exponential solutions. Whether we like it or not, our economies are going to be shaken apart within the next 10 to 15 years. Question, uh, are we just going to stand around and watch that happen uh, and cling on to our pensions or whatever else we can secure in, in, among the debris? Or are we going to play into that? And are we going to help steer and shape and inform uh, these sort of convulsive exponential shifts in our economy. And that's where I've decided Volans should uh, position itself and it, it's increasing the nature of the work that we do. It's not easy, but by God, it's fascinating. <laughs> it certainly is fascinating. Um, so here at the Institute, we're obviously looking at the financing of sustainability. And you've said that the number one reason we might collectively fail to turn our whole economy green over the next 30 years is because we didn't move the money fast enough and at sufficient scale. So I know, yeah. Volans, you're now exploring this part of the equation. You know, if we can get business to move, how do we get the finance going to support that? Uh, it's a huge topic, but what's your sense on what the financial industry needs to do? Well, the first thing to say is, you know, I, I hugely admire the work that the Green Finance Institute has done and is doing. I think it's absolutely uh, essential. Um, uh, in the companies that we uh, work with, uh, a number of which are going through uh, self-directed um, and self-decided uh, processes of transformation, capital is often the limiting 
uh, factor and they're in their road shows and you know their, their their exercises with investors and so on trying to explain that um uh, future to people who are absolutely um obsessed with with the next quarter or mm. the, you know, perhaps the next year or 18 months is is very hard but it that pattern is starting to shift investors are starting to become uneasy in their bones they're beginning to feel that um uh, long-term investment might be a thing uh, they don't know how to do it um but i think there's growing interest in that and with with people like blackrock uh, increasingly uh, breathing down people's necks and i think people not surprisingly were highly skeptical of what larry fink and some of the other uh, financial sector leaders uh, started saying but as we start to see them rolling out the pressure through the uh, portfolios of companies that they're invested in, I tend to take them uh, rather more seriously. Um, so finance is, 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 is fundamentally important. The problem is finance now operates on speed. Um, and, well, I, I know there's more cocaine in uh, <laughs> London's Thames because of the financial community than there ever has been. Um, but I didn't quite mean that. I just mean that artificial intelligence and expert systems and big data and all these models where sort of fractions of an inch of a, 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 a data cable make the the difference in trading yeah. um it's it's an astonishing world and trying to break into that and get those the operatives of that system to pay attention to the sort of deep time long time consequences of their trades and investments and other actions is really tough uh and in a sense, that's why they have to derail. Uh, and I think, you know, in, anyone who's invested in the oil sector uh, and fossil fuels generally must be scratching their heads slightly at the moment and just thinking, are we going to go back to business as usual or is this uh, a funda fundamental reset? I, I think we will have excursions back to the mean, but I think the reset has actually uh, started. And that, to me, means a different generation of investors over time in the same way that it means a different uh, generation of CEOs and a different generation of politicians. Then I think countries, uh, Scandinavian countries, for example, Norway with uh, sovereign wealth funds, which, which direct society's resources over a, a long uh, period of time or discussions in this country of um, you know, green banks uh, operating at the national level. I think those are fundamentally important, and and and, but they require a, a a form of intelligence and government, which we conspicuously lack at the moment. Right, and maybe to your point earlier about collaboration, it does feel like we need greater collaboration between specifically the public sector and the private sector if we do want to mobilize capital and create solutions. We do need more collaboration, but you know, I, I I've heard people talk about partnerships for a very long time. And if you look at the UN Sustainable Development Goals, then the, as you know, the 17th goal is all around partnerships. Partnerships are wonderful. But the question is, partnerships for what? Mm. And if they're for incremental change, that can be useful. But I think we've increasingly got to build partnerships for uh, system change. Um, and it's, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm discovering with the CEOs and business leaders that we do work with is you know if, if you go back to the late 90s a um, couple of decades back uh, CEOs suddenly realized that they could help save the world and this was very exciting and they would join things like the B team and the World Business Council for sustainable development and the global compact and so on and so forth uh, what they're beginning to realize now 
is that even business as a whole cannot sort this systemic crisis out. We need government and we need politicians uh, to sort of wade in. And that's where Milton Friedman was so uh, conclusively wrong. I mean, he, I always love his um, phrase, which is if you put the in the US, the federal government in charge of the Sahara, you'll run out of sand in five years. <laughs> that, that spoke to his uh, uh, belief and faith in government, and he lacked both. Um, and yet, government is now absolutely central. Mm. And one of the things that we've got to do is ensure that government, when it does come into the uh, game more um, uh, powerfully, is also effective. There's a wonderful social enterprise based in London called Apolitical that is um, aggregating and sharing uh, between uh, public servants in different parts of the world, best practice. And I think that's that, that that's that's a wonderfully timely initiative because in the same way as in business, we don't properly understand how to run this new system that we're going to have to um, uh, build. Governments don't yet either. So it's, there's a learning curve that we've all got to come up with at the same pace and the same scale. And as you say, uh, help each other uh, along the way. Those are the sorts of partnerships I would like uh, to see, and I, as it will not be a surprise, I'd like to see more intergenerational uh, partnerships between young and middle-aged and older uh, people. That has to happen if we're going to get through this uh, in good order. Oh. So there's so much we could talk about, but uh, sadly, we have to depart soon. So I wonder if you can share with us um, what you're working on now, what we can look forward to from you and Volens. Uh, two uh, initiatives in the um, financial sector. One is looking at what it means to be a responsible bank and the report of that has already been published. That's with the um, Santander and business in the community. And then, and uh, GFI are involved in this, uh, the all-party parliamentary group on fair business banking came to us and said they wanted to do an exercise to pull together the UK banks uh, and consider how they best support uh, small and medium-sized enterprises and critical sectors in the shift towards um, net zero. Um, but we've just been asked whether we would help pull together the banks specifically for the COP26 uh, climate conference in Glasgow in next November, if all goes well, November uh, 2021. So that's that's one piece. Um, we're doing some a lot of uh, client work with really interesting companies, Acciona in Spain, which is an infrastructure renewable energy uh, company, Neste, which used to be the state owned oil company in Finland, which is now hammering into uh, renewable energy and the circular economy. But at the same time, because of the reception that the Green Swans book has had, which sort of I found sort of slightly overwhelming at times, I've done, I think, t uh, almost 100 now uh, virtual keynotes and um, podcasts since the book <laughs> uh, came out, and that's in over 30 countries. And each one of those is sort of triggering greater interest. And the nature of the interest is very often people saying, well, that's fascinating, and I like the examples, but I, I, I operate in this geography or this sector, or I've, these are my challenges. Can you give me some examples there? So we're setting up a, a Green Swans Observatory to aggregate uh, again, best practice from around the world. Uh, we've got a, a number of leading uh, universities and business schools that are helping us. Um, and we're doing a couple of living case studies at the same time, looking at regeneration in practice as it happens and trying to work out in the process what works uh, and what uh, doesn't. So that for me is a very big 
uh, feature in, in, in my mental uh, landscape. And then just a final thing, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a new book, which is partly on the uh, societal pressure waves that drive all of this. And I'm starting to, th at the first, for the first time ever, I'm trying to predict where the next waves might take us. And I think the sixth wave could largely be around impact. Mm. And we may think, you know, we're seeing impact everywhere, but the broad world hasn't really woken up to that uh, yet. And we're still struggling uh, to work out how to make this uh, work. So we're, we're, I chair a, um, an advisory uh, board within Novartis looking at how we potentially put a financial valuation on different forms of impact. And I think that agenda is absolutely central to what comes next. So there may well be a sixth wave around that. The seventh wave, at least in my mind, is around regeneration. And we've already uh, talked about that quite a lot. Um, but I do think that's where we've got to head next. I think that's where capital markets are going to have to head next. And I think some um, thoughtful companies are already thinking about that. And the next sort of, and, and, and it may well be that those waves converge. You suddenly get a super wave, almost a tsunami of change. Uh, and the question then is, is, is that manageable or not? Uh, and I think that's where the political challenge comes in for all of us, whether we're in business or finance or whatever. We've all got to now do the politics. We've all got to step up uh, and help the cha changes, necessary changes happen. But I have to say, I'm 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 71 now, um, and I think I, I've said this a number of times, but I think the next 10 to 15 years are going to be the most exciting, uh, the most challenging, and politically the most dangerous of my entire uh, working life. And yet fantastic fun at times. So John, we're certainly grateful you have so much energy and are um, going to be around pushing uh, the finance community, the business community, the political community, all of us over the next few decades, we hope. Um, and it's been such a pleasure to, to hear from someone who is, you know, as we said, sort of constantly pushing us beyond our comfort zones in such a critical period of human history, of planetary history. Um, so thank you. But before we part ways, we mm. have these uh, three questions that we like to ask every guest. So um, what is one thing you think we're not talking about enough when it comes to transforming our economy? I think it's the rights of future generations. I mean, it's not that it wasn't built into the heart of the sustainable development uh, agenda back in the 1980s, but we haven't made any great progress in factoring uh, the interests, uh, and by that I mean partly financial but non-financial as well, of, of those who are very young now or not even born. Uh, and I think that's something we're going to have to work out, even to the point of having representatives of, of their interests on boards of major companies, financial institutions, uh, even in cabinets. Uh, there have been some attempts uh, to do that and some brave ones. But I think a lot more effort is needed on that front. Um, that would be fantastic. The second question is, I wonder if you could share with us one thing you do outside of work to help support a more sustainable future for our planet. Well, it's funny. I, uh, my wife, Elaine, and I have two daughters. Uh, but the closest I've ever given uh, come to giving birth was when I released 30,000 uh, elvers or baby eels into the River Severn a few years ago. And one of the things that I, I, I've done over the years is help a, a group called the Sustainable Eel Group uh, to try and bring back eels into our uh, seas, uh, rivers, lakes, and so on. 
And the reason is that, you know, I, I, I had a, uh, an experience when I was very young which uh, with eels, which just transformed the way I, I viewed the world. And since 1970, the population of European eels has crashed over 95%. It's just, it's one of the more extreme examples uh, of um, what we're doing to wildlife. And, you know, it, it's not that I love eels. I think they're, 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 they're hideous creatures in some way, but they're foundational. Uh, with within ecosystems, everything eats eels. Um, so that's one that's one thing I do, um, and uh, it, it's actually immensely rewarding because it puts you in nature and it, it gives you that sense of. People talk about giving back. There's a sense of contributing to the future in some semi magical way. So many questions now I will have about eels, but like we don't have time for them. And I am particularly um, thrilled uh, being from Southend on Sea. Grew up around. A lot of jelly deals. Um, yes. didn't eat them actually, but uh, <laughs> very familiar <Horrible>. with eels. <laughs> um, and then finally, and you know, inspired by you, really, uh, what's one thing you've read lately that's given you a sense of optimism and excitement? Well, you know, I read books compulsively, but I'm gonna maybe I'll take a different tack. Um, I read several newspapers every day, and 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 among them the Financial Times, um, and I think the best paper, certainly in 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 the UK, is the Financial Times on Saturday. And when you look at what the FT has become, just in the last couple of years, uh, it covers our issues in a way that was unthinkable two or three years uh, back. Consistently, every issue has you know, four, five, six more. Uh, stories on on our sort of themes, thoughtfully uh, reported on, thoughtfully analysed. Um, it's a joy. I mean, I still <laughs> not enough more, please. But um, uh, the, I, I, as I say, I read it every day, and I I, I take great heart uh, from that level of intelligent coverage. Yeah, I think we're very grateful to have to have all this covered by a financial publication. Um, yeah. Well, wonderful. This is. Um... Fantastic. Thank you. I've had you for so long and I'm so grateful for your time, <laughs> given oh, no, no, how much you're dedicating you, yourself. No, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to engage. And I, again, I think the Institute does extraordinary work. Thank you all for what you do. Um, look forward to watching it from a safe distance, but also uh, to working out other ways to uh, work together over time. Uh, you, you mentioned partnerships. I think they're vital. It would be our absolute pleasure. Thank you so much again for joining us, John. And if you want to know more about John, you can check out volens.com. And if you're a bookworm like John, uh, I highly recommend the Green Swans book club that you'll find there. So that's all for this week, though, from Green is the New Finance. I'll be back with Ryan Jude in a week or so, where we'll be sitting down with new age traveller turned clean energy entrepreneur and chair of the greenest football club in the world. That's Dale Vince of Ecotricity and Forest Green Rovers. And in my next fireside chat, I'll be joined by Annette Nazareth, former commissioner at the US Securities and Exchange Commission and operating lead for the Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. Till then. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.